Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. In case I forgot get to mention it, uh, I have three books available on Amazon, Where the Monsters Go and Blood on Black. It's a two-volume set about the very comprehensive look at the West Memphis Three case. I also have a revised, condensed, combined version of those two books called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Uh, it's in a, a more affordable and maybe even a more readable, assuming you don't want to get into all the details about the case. Uh, uh, and they're all available on Amazon. Now I'm I'm having inadequate. Not that my audio setup is ever great anyway, but it, I really have an inadequate audio setup for what I'm attempting to do. But you know, yesterday didn't didn't sound that bad, and I think I've figured out how to make today's much better. And I'm not going to go on so long. I'll say briefly that you know it was communicated to me that. Before I get into ID network thing, it was communicated to me that Bob Ruff seemed to think I was changing my mind, you know, backpedaling on, on, about something that I guess he assumed he I, I'd said about animal predation at some point. Uh, You know, as if, you know, now I'm sort of trying to explain it away. It's not the case. It never has been the case. Long before I ever heard of Bob Ruff, I may not even have known what a podcast was at the time. And it wasn't that long ago. But anyway, I, I wrote this in Blood on Black. Experts hired by the defense even claim the mutilations were the result of animal predators, particularly snapping turtles though Christopher bled to death before being placed in the water. While it is possible, even likely, that small fish or turtles left superficial wounds, it is not possible that a team of highly trained, trained snapping turtles killed Chris. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much all I had. I think I had something else, and I, I think I said something else in there about they didn't find any turtles in the, 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 the ditch, which they didn't. That's the extent of my dissertation on turtles in the book, as, as I recall. But uh, so it's I haven't changed my view on this, and I'm pr not going to be changing my view. My view when I wrote that, and my view now is it's possible, maybe even likely, that there were some small, and it's exactly what I was saying the other day that there might have been some small predation going on with uh, when the bodies were placed in the water. Um, and could be turtles be involved? Possibly, except, you know, it's not feeding time for turtles at night. And during the day, they had all these searchers out looking, and that drainage ditch was not the prime territory. I'm not saying they never had any turtles in that ditch, because I'm sure they did. But... The, most of the turtles were congregated down in Ten Mile Bayou, which is a much richer feeding environment than uh, a drainage ditch that uh, might not even have water in it part of the year. It would just be basically some mud. So, 
and there, it had been quite rainy the last couple of weeks, so that that ditch was busier than usual on May fifth, nineteen. Or busier, it was wetter than usual on May fifth, nineteen ninety three. Uh, I think it's if there is animal predation there, and I'm not totally convinced there's a significant amount, but. Let's give them the benefit of doubt and say there's more than just slight animal predation. Maybe there's more than that. Maybe it's some sort of significant amount of animal predation. And I'm, I don't think there is. But let's assume that. Well, it still doesn't mean that the, predate, the predators weren't attracted by these uh, wounds that were inflicted by Jason Baldwin. It's not an either-or situation. You either have to have knife or you have to have animal predation. You can have both. And the, degree, the, and the degree to which you have both is something that's probably worth discussing and probably would have been thoroughly discussed uh, at an evidentiary hearing in 2011, but the defendants decided they would take a guilty plea instead. So... Uh, since then, they've basically gotten, you know, they've gotten their uh, paid-for experts to issue their paid-for opinions about what such-and-such such means. It doesn't have a lot of credibility as far as I'm concerned, unless it's really tested in court. It has some credibility. It's something worth looking at. Uh, we can't totally discount it. But bottom line Put Warner Spitz on the stand and say, Dr. Spitz, can you can you rule, rule out the possibility that these boys were already wounded before they were placed in the water? And if he's intellectually honest, which is really doubtful, I would say he isn't based on his record with particularly some cases. Um, he, he should be saying, well, I really can't say, I, I don't really know for sure. But these these it looks like animal animals preyed on them. Okay, but were they already wounded? Were the wounds already there when the animals preyed on them? To me, I don't see how he could say he no. I don't see how he could deny that wounds were there. Authoritate absolutely. Maybe he could. Maybe I'm sure he knows much more about this than I do. But so does Dr. Peretti and the other people over there that, that actually look at the bodies. The other thing, uh, and this is stuff that kind of gets back to me, but uh, Ruff uh, was saying that I was making excuses if they don't find DNA related to the killers on the bodies. Well, number one, I don't think they're really going to do the kind of, I don't think they're going to do any DNA testing, period. I don't think they have standing for it. I don't think is the people that, the only people that could, that, the only person who really, really could make a case for it and, and then actually and might be willing to do it would be Jason Baldwin. I don't think Jason Baldwin wants to do that because I think he knows what's going to be found if they really did some really good DNA testing on this and it's not going to look good for Jason Baldwin 
The fact is, is the DNA testing from 2011. We haven't seen those results. Where are those results, Bob Ruff? Why don't you ask about those? Why don't you just acknowledge that you haven't bothered to really follow up on that, at least? But, you know, uh, you could go to Jason Baldwin and get him to, to file, get, he can call somebody and get in Arkansas and get them to file, you know, one of his lawyer buddies up there, they could get, they could file something and, you know, Jason Baldwin could make an argument that uh, he's uh, going to, uh, uh, that he needs to see this DNA because he's got new evidence. Now, they are, made this argument back in 2011. They got permission to, to do some testing, some evidence. And then when it came right down to it, instead of presenting the results of that testing, they opted to plead guilty. So I don't know what the court, how the court would look at that again, a new request when they really didn't follow through with the intent of the old request. Probably not very favorably. But who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what will happen? I don't know what happens when you go to court. Let's assume some the court pulls out some obscure case law and says, oh, yeah, by the way, it says here we absolutely must let Jason Baldwin retest this evidence. What are they going to retest? Are they going to retest the – are they going to te- test the lake knife to see if maybe there's some slight re- – you know, the way Ruff talks about it, there ought to be some DNA from the uh, – <laughs> Ought to be some DNA on that lake knife, even if it's fish, fish DNA. There ought to be some DNA on that lake knife with this miracle, miracle process that he keeps touting. Uh, are they going to go to uh, Stevie Branch's pants? They have that semen stain that, da- Jay, that Damien Eccles left on there when he masturbated over uh, Stevie's naked body. Are they going to test that? If they test that and it comes out and it's some, and it's not Damien, and it's some obscure serial killer someplace, oh, uh, we got the DNA match and it was the Golden State Killer or something. <laughs> I mean, just I'm just saying. Oh well, you know what I would say? I'd say, well, I get, I, you know, sorry guys, I guess I really had that wrong. These were the unluckiest guys in the world, a lot like the, these other very unlucky people. You know, the Nick Henry, very unlucky fellow. Uh, Anon Sayed, very unlucky fellow. Steve Avery, a very unlucky fellow. Just uh, very, very unlucky people. All these coincidences piled up on them and made them look guilty. Uh, kind of like happened with Ted Bundy. You know, he didn't really do it. Uh, he just happened to be using his credit card in the same place that all those girls were killed. And, you know, he, he there's no real proof. And he just happened to have all that stuff in the car with him. But that doesn't prove he killed anybody just because he had uh, a rape kit in his car. Uh, but let's say if they did all that test and they came back, and and it gets you know they they get like oodles and oodles of results from it just all sorts of results they're testing the bicycles and they're testing all the clothing they're tasting the tasting the strings they're taste t- t- testing the uh, the blood pendant as I said the semen stained pants the lake knife and none of it comes back it shows anything from the West Memphis three 
Well, what happens if all it does is it shows family members who have so far have been the favorite alternative suspects? What does that prove? If it it, it, it proves nothing, except that family members might have been in contact with those particular items, unless you get <laughs> unless it's. You get a, you know, you're not going to find a family member, uh, anybody except, except, uh, I think it's Stevie's blood that's on that blood pen. You're not going to find blood, uh, a match on the blood pendant with anybody else in the family. Very unlikely. Maybe it matches Jason. I don't know. Let's find out. Let's find out. If you want to test DNA, by God, find out. But, if you don't test everything and you don't test those very problematic items that really would really help to pinpoint who actually did this, if you don't test those things, you're not doing an honest test. And I'm not going to pay a whole lot of attention to it if it comes back and you said, oh, well, we tested a couple of the uh, shoestrings and we really we couldn't find any DNA from the West Memphis Three. Who did you find DNA from? Well, really nobody else. Well, it doesn't prove anything. It does not prove a thing. So go for it. It ain't going to happen. But if it does, let's see what happens. Again, I I make the point. One more time, I'll shut up about this. If you really wanted to make it happen, get, get little Jason Baldwin down there in Austin, Texas. Have him get on the phone and call one of his high-priced lawyer buddies up in... in uh, and we know he's got the connections up here, up there. Let him make the phone calls to his good connections up in Arkansas and let them file a motion for due DNA testing and see how far it gets. It ain't going to get very far, and it doesn't matter how many emails you sent, how many phone calls, how many letters, not that any of Ruff's audience is going to be sending, actually sending a letter, but... Uh, I mean, people get on Facebook page and complain about it. They don't care. Uh, Scott Ellington is going to be a judge in January. He he's got a he had a tornado hit his town a week and a half ago during the middle of a pandemic shutdown. I just think he probably has got other things on his mind but a goofy podcaster who thinks he can now solve the West Memphis 3 case with DNA testing a remedy that was available to the West Memphis 3 back in 2011 and they chose not to go that route well, I mean, you know the truth is is they tried and they didn't get the results they were hoping for did they get results implicating one of them? I wouldn't be surprised, but we'll just never know because they'll never reveal those results. Okay, that's enough of that. I'm going to talk somewhat briefly one more time about uh, ID Network and their abomination. Uh, it's a nod to William Ramsey, who I, I like his book. Uh, I realize there's some overlap in the information we have between the two of them, but you know, I was I was working on that book when his book came out, and I, you know, I thought, well, he's really covered it pretty well, but I 
I think I covered more. I know I covered more than he did, and that was always my intention. But you know, he, it's a good book. Anyway, uh, I am going to play a bit of the ID Network before I even get started, so I can play for a little bit. They have Vicki Hutchison just sort of magically showing up in the case at some point, and they position it after they've supposedly let Chris Morgan go as the primary suspect and now latched on to Damian Eccles as the primary suspect. Chris Morgan was interviewed well after Damian Eccles was interviewed, and uh, he was never the primary suspect. Damian Eccles became the number one suspect pretty early on as in the first week of the case, because he was spotted walking away from the scene of the crime. Hello, people. What other criteria do we need for drawing suspicion on somebody than being seen walking in muddy clothes by three different people who knew him on the night of the murders at about 9.30 at night? That's enough alone to make you a prime suspect. He has... Changing alibis, he really can't explain where he where he was consistently, and they do they do uh, in an interview with the FBI checklist. He and he manages to check just about all the boxes that make him look like he's the guy who did it. You know, he was happy. Uh, the the killer would be happy about uh, the results of the killing. Uh, so I, I should really should go down that checklist sometime and just read all of it off. It makes it they he was questioned extensively about it in court and it made him look very very guilty, which it should have, and it had a huge effect on the jury. And Eccles, with his ego, thought that that wouldn't be a problem. And Jason Baldwin, who's kind of stupid, if you want to know the truth, he's not as stupid as Muskelly, but he's pretty stupid. He thinks that. Uh, that if only he could have given the kind of testimony that Damien had, he'd be walking free today. Dream on Jason Baldwin. Anyway, I was going to say Vicky, uh, Vicky Hutchison, uh, they don't explain this, but Vicki Hutchison was in the Marion Police Department when the call came in. She was there. The boys were missing. She'd already been over to John Mark Byers' house. Her son was friends with uh, Christopher, and he was friends with Michael, and I think he knew Stevie. I'm not sure they were th- that that close as friends, but they certainly knew all knew each other. And uh, Vicky Hutchinson was friends with John Mark Byers, just like Heather Clyde, J- Jason Baldwin's girlfriend, was friends with John Mark Byers. A lot of people were friends with John Mark Byers. Uh, he gets a bad rap, and he's got it. He got he's maybe has a problematic personality, but a lot of people liked him at that point. Uh, anyway, he uh, she was over there, and then she had taken. She was upset. She'd taken. They thought maybe uh, her son Aaron might know something that would help. She got him out of school, and then she took Aaron. This is foolish, really bad mothering, but she takes Aaron with her to the uh, Marion Police Department to talk about uh, she'd been accused of uh, writing a bad check, I believe. I think that's the mechanics of it. Something to do with a bad check at her her gas station job. Uh, 
and so she's in there trying to get that straightened out. And uh, she happens to mention that Aaron's friends with the little boys that are missing. I'm not mistaken, Don Bray calls Marion Police Department to tell them about this, and he gets the news back. I think that's how that worked. Anyway, they get, he, Don Bray, over the phone, gets the news that the three boys' bodies have been found. And here is a little friend of uh, the three boys in the office with the police department. And the mother's there trying to get a criminal charge averted, uh, trying to get uh, criminal charges, potential criminal charges straightened out. So anyway, that's what happened. They don't. It's 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 more interesting, and it would have been a better story that she's actually in the office. Then instead, they have her coming forward as if she was just showing up there looking for a reward. That's not what happened. I mean, she may have wanted. She might have done that eventually. She certainly wanted a reward. She certainly went out of her way looking to get involved in the case. But her initial involvement came by strictly by, by it, the way it turned out, I would say, fortuitous accident. Anyway, we'll listen to the ID network for a little bit. Unexpected informant steps forward. Police suddenly get a new stream of information in this very bizarre case in the form of a woman named Vicki Hutchinson. She lives in a little town not far away, Marion. Vicki actually doesn't live in Marion. Vicki lives lived in Highland Trailer Park, which was where Jesse Muskelly lived. It's not in Marion. It's almost in Marion. Marion doesn't really want to incorporate the, uh, these trailer parks, Lakeside, Highland, because they're trashed out, low tax base high maintenance, the residents are going to be a lot of trouble. But the residents the, the, the residents of those trailer parks go to Marion schools. And uh, Marion and West Memphis, the city boundaries do meet at some points. Not as many as you might think, but they're not far away at all. It's, it's in, from one downtown to the other is uh, maybe... A, Eh, depends on how you define the downtown. Basically, if you go up Missouri Street and keep going, and it's maybe five to seven minutes, you're going to be in Marion. So it's not cl- it's not they're not right next to each other, but they're very close. In fact, they are right next to each other in the sense that their city limits meet at certain points. And she tells her local police officer that her eight-year-old son has been best friends with the three dead boys. Vicki has also heard the gossip around the community that Damien Eccles might be involved in this murder. <laughs> I didn't even catch on to this the first time I watched it. She said she heard that Damien Eccles might be involved with this murder. She hadn't heard any such thing on uh, May 6, 1993. She didn't know anything about Damien Eccles. She doesn't, she hasn't, she, I mean, she just knows now that there's murders. Now, she did come back later. You know, she got wind that Damien was a likely suspect. She came back later and said, you know, I'd like to get to know Damien. And that, that's, let's see how they explain the rest of this. So she tells the police officer she knows a friend of Damien's, a young man, 17 years old, named Jesse Miskelly. 
Jesse had recently dropped out of <coughs> Jesse had recently dropped out of high school. I think he'd been dropped out for quite a while. Uh, and uh, once again, all this that she's telling somebody that she's Jesse Miskelly's uh, some sort of link to Damian Eccles, that did not occur on May 6, 1993. It just didn't happen. High school. He worked part-time for Vicki Hutchinson as a babysitter and helped her doing yard work, things of that nature. Well, th that relationship was more like he was just sort of helping her around the house. He didn't really work for her. He was doing her a neighborly thing uh, for whatever purpose. We know that Vicky would buy him liquor, so that was one incentive. But he probably honestly liked her, and she probably honest. I mean, it seems apparent that they liked each other and were friends. Uh, but he wasn't as if he was her employee. The poor woman barely had any money. He also lived in a trailer park. He'd been he also lived in a trailer park. They don't tell you that it was the same trailer park that Vicky was living in. Most of them, and he had been pretty much in special ed classes all along. Now, Jesse is nice enough, but he has once told Vicky that his friend... Jesse is nice enough. Jesse, uh, two months before, had been charged with hitting a little girl in the head with a rock. And it's not the first time he'd been accused of attacking a smaller child, a girl, with uh, a rock. So I guess it depends on what you... He was, accused, he was described as, you know, threatening people with knives, beating people up. He had a reputation of being a, a, a kind of a bully, though he's only about, what, 5'2 or something like that. But he, he was extremely aggressive with some people. He beat up uh, a girl that sometimes seems to be paired with him as a girlfriend, but it's not really clear what their relationship was. He beat her up on a regular basis and left a bloody nose, got into a fight with her boyfriend, our new boyfriend or whatever. Uh, Jesse was not a nice fellow. So Mara Leverett should know better than that, but Mara Leverett, Leverett is a, a paid liar, essentially. Damien likes to drink blood and stuff, and that he's into satanic rituals. So she wants to be like an undercover detective for the police. The detective doesn't say, oh no, you leave the investigation to us. He says, detective doesn't say, oh, no, leave the uh, investigation to us. Marion Police Department wasn't involved in the, they weren't officially involved in the investigation. They were uh, a friendly police agency. Uh, Donald Bray was acting largely independently of the West Memphis Police Department in obtaining interviews with uh, Vicki Hutchinson's son, Aaron Hutchinson. There was some uh, interviewing done by the West Memphis Police Department. Most of that, these repeated interviews um, that uh, Aaron was undergoing were by Donald Bray, mostly. Uh, and he was, you know, he was not f following the directions of West Memphis Police Department when he did any of this. Keep me posted. 
he doesn't really know what might be going on there and if these really are killers, but he doesn't stop her. They're kind of glad for the help. They're kind of glad for the help. Mara is acting as if the West Memphis Police Department was so desperate that her play, that Vicki Hutchison playing detective would have been something they would welcome. That was true. That's it's true in West Memphis. I mean, in Marion, but you know, the idea that they were really just thrilled about her being involved in this. No, uh, glad for the help. It's very, a very condescending thing as if they were never going to catch the killers without her help, which in a certain way is true. She's the vital link to Miskelly, who's the vital link to the killers. So in that sense, they should be glad for her help, but it wasn't the help, help in the same way as was intended or would have been perceived at the time. Weeks later, Hutchison approaches Detective Ridge of the West Memphis Police Department. She says Damien and Jesse took her on a terrifying journey. Vicki Hutchinson says that she went to a gathering of people who are interested in the occult. She calls it an ESPOT. ES. Actually, she called it an ESPOT. ES, uh, one word, P-O-T, another, but... Anyway. It's a gathering of witches. It took place in an open field outside of West Memphis. Damien drove her. They got there, and it was dark. She couldn't... No, no ID Network has all these people in black robes. No, if, if they were there, they were in t- uh, T-shirts and blue jeans or short, uh, cargo shorts or something like that. Really cheesy. See people's faces, and there was a lot of sexy. Ch- she didn't know. She did recognize uh, Sean Webb there, so it's not as if she didn't know anybody. She didn't know these kids. It wasn't that dark when she got there. It was starting to get dark. She knew Sean Webb, I believe, was one she did recognize from there. Dancing and singing and so forth and so on. These three of them approached a group of men and women all in the field, but she couldn't recognize any of them. I mean... She did recognize one of them. And to say they were men and women might be a stretch. These are kids. This was an intense scene. These people were taking their clothes off. She's a little bit uncomfortable. And finally, she told Damien she was scared and to take her home. And he did. But police view Hutchison's tale with a hint of skepticism. There was a reward out for solving. You know, as they should. And, you know, Vicki Hutchison later said that she drank, she got into an argument with her boyfriend, drank a whole bottle of Southern Comfort, which is fairly potent alcoholic beverage. And uh, woke up the next morning past, she'd been blacked out in her front yard and maybe had some sort of vague memories of something or other. That's the genesis of the, you know, but she made up the, basically she made up this story. So they were right to be somewhat skeptical. Much as, you know, once again, this is sort of a, uh, a irrelevant side issue. 
she testified about this trip at uh, Miss Kelly's trial, and she was loaded up that you know on enough stuff that would have kept uh, Hunter Thompson in a state of uh, collapse uh, during a weekend in Vegas. I mean, it was just a long list. She was. She took this. She took this. She took this. So she was totally drugged up for the, her testimony. But uh, she seemed to have gotten through it all right in the sense that she didn't pass out on in the stand. But she, um, you know, it really was irrelevant to the Miskelly case, and it was re- irrelevant enough to the Eccles Baldwin case that. She didn't show. She was not used as a witness there. So that tells you something about what kind of effect her testimony had on the case, the prosecutors, and so forth. She was not that important. And the story of a trip to an Espot, Esbot, whatever. Uh, what it, it doesn't prove. <laughs> one thing it doesn't prove a murder was committed. It, it, uh, Eccles has already said he's a witch. Let's take his word for it. You know, witches usually attend occult ceremonies. Okay, he does that. Uh, Miskelly, in his confession, said he was involved in these satanic ceremonies. Let's take his word for that. Why would he make up something like that? I don't think he was very involved, and I don't think he understood what they were about. But I think he had attend. I think he'd been to a few when. Damien was, you know, the, the, the longer this went on with the descriptions, it became pretty obvious that what it was, was it was some sort of rinky-dink, uh, let's make, build a campfire, Damien can act like he's the, uh, the chief Satan, uh, the mysterious character called Lucifer would show up, and I'm not making this up, and he, he was referred to numerous times, including to by Vicki Hutchison, who uh, described him. Apparently, a big-nosed fellow who lived in um, Lake Shore Estates, according to some versions, looked like Damien, according to some versions. Actually, there's lots of different versions of this guy and what he looked like. He was kind of a shapeshifter, so maybe he, you know, if he was a shapeshifter, maybe he was a. uh, I'm joking, but maybe he was a demon. Maybe it was Damien's demon was showing up, Lucifer. He's, as, he's been as elusive as a real demon. I will say that. Nobody seems, he shows up over and over again in these different stories. Nobody seems to know who he is. Nobody that's talking anyway. The triple murder, right? So maybe she wanted that money. She couldn't use $30,000 or whatever it was at that point. Is she telling the truth? They give her a polygraph test and guess what? She passes. Authorities now feel certain that they're on the right track. Police. So she passes a polygraph. Well, yeah. Are convinced that Damien Eccles is in fact a leader of some sort of occult group. Well, he, you know, he was certainly involved in, wanted to be involved in a an occult group, and he affiliated himself with the. Covenant tried to affiliate himself with the Covenant of the Divine Light with Murray Ferris and Chris Luttrell. They really didn't want anything to do with Damien. But 
Damien does seem to be positioning himself as a leader of something. It's just not really clear who would be his follower except for his loyal disciple, Jason. So they decide to get the young man who has introduced Vicky to him. That's Jesse Miskelly. A month has passed since the murders, and it was going to be the full moon again. Detective Bridge went to Jesse Miskelly. And Aura throws in, it was going to be the full moon again. Maybe that was a real consideration. You have to consider the source here. She thinks all this full moon occult business is just absolute silliness that nobody could ever possibly kill anybody for occult motives. Because that's all superstition, don't you know? His house asked him if he would come in for questioning, and he said, sure. Mike Allen went to. Mike Allen was going was asked to go get Jesse, not Detective Rich. Mike Allen was asked to go talk, bring in Jesse Miskelly Jr. to talk to him about his association with Damian Eccles. They'd done this with a number of other kids. Uh, you know, at this point, they were going through lots of different witnesses and. Uh, and not, not just related to Damien Eccles, but lots of other people. But, you know, as different people would pop up, they would go talk to them about maybe what they knew about the case. And, you know, some of it is a matter of hunting around. If if it turns out that Damien hadn't been involved, maybe Jesse Muskelly Jr. might know somebody or something that would lead them some other place. So that's how detectives work. They gather information and they work through it. So uh, Mike Allen goes and uh, gets permission from Jesse's father. Uh, actually, he contacts Jesse's father first. They find Jesse over at Vic, sleeping over at Vicki Hutchinson's house. Uh, Mike Allen gets uh, Je- uh, gets uh, Jesse Jr. and they go get permission from Jesse Senior for. To, so the police can talk to Jesse Jr. because Jesse Jr. is 17. He's going to turn 18 the next month, but he's 17 at the time. And they take him to the police station. Let's see what else they get wrong here. Strange as Damien Eccles was to the police, who did not give them probable cause to arrest him. They still needed more. And now they were looking at Jesse Miss Kelly. And now they were looking at Jesse Miskelly. They weren't looking at Jesse Miskelly at that point as anything but an acquaintance of Damien Eccles that might give them some valuable information. I mean, they Jesse had talked about Damien drinking blood, and he and Damien was weird, and Damien was sick, and they thought maybe, maybe Damien. I mean, Jesse is one of these. All these other kids we talked to with very similar sorts of stories about Damien, maybe. Jesse knows something that the rest of them don't. And that's all that was. It wasn't, they weren't looking at him as a suspect. Far from it. Detective Ridge is hoping that he'll maybe slip. Jesse staunch. Detective Ridge is hoping that he'll maybe slip. That's not what happened. They had a uh, preliminary conversation. They take notes. 
uh, Jesse says that uh, he'd heard that Damien and Robert Birch may have committed the crime, so he sort of implic- he throws a little something out there for the police, and everything's cool, and then they, they say, well, you you take a polygraph, right? Oh, yeah. He takes a polygraph. They come back and say, well, you lied on the polygraph. And from that point on, his defenses collapse, and within the space of talk to it, they talk to him after that for about two hours, from about twelve thirty to about two forty. Then they tape uh, tape a confession from uh, two forty to three fifteen or so. That's his first confession, and then sometime before five, they taped another brief statement. Otherwise. And after that first confession, which ended at three three fifteen or so, except for coming back and talking to him again, they pretty much left him alone. They'd gotten what they needed from him. So the twelve hour interrogation is is a total farce. In fact, they really didn't even start talking to him until uh, uh, sometime after eleven when they got all the ran down the got the permission get all the paperwork done so it was sometime after 11 they talked to him for you know roughly maybe an hour 45 minutes half an hour something like that i'm sure it'd take a while to set up the polygraph they set up the polygraph around 12 30 he starts talking and then um uh, you know all that it's it's not 12 hours it's just a couple of hours I mean, from the time he first came in until he stopped talking at the end of the first confession is from 10 to 3.15, so it's like five and a half hours. That may sound like a long time, but a lot of that was, as I say, involved in paperwork and uh, the time between he re- when he really started, they really started thinking, oh, we might have something here was after the polygraph. And that, the space of that is 12 12.30 or so to less than three hours, including quite a bit of time that, that's actually on tape. He denies he had anything to do with the murders, but they tell him they have to give him a polygraph test, and he agrees. They ask him 10 pointed questions about what he was doing the night of the murders, whether or not he was part of them. He denies everything. But at the end of the polygraph test, the technician says to the detectives, quote, he's lying his ass off. In the face of Miss Kelly's alleged deceit, Ridge grows confrontational. What Jesse and Miss Kelly would say next would forever change his case. Okay, let me skip through the commercial here. Exit YouTube TV and no, launch no, Slay no, TV. No, 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 Cancel no, no, button no, two of no, two. No, 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 Cancel no. Cancel button two of two. <laughs> uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure y'all enjoyed that. Anyway, what's going to happen here is they're going to mischaracterize what Miss Kelly actually did. Here we are, and... You know, they keep showing West Memphis, Arkansas, and they show the Mississippi River Bridge, which is miles away from, uh, it's actually the DeSoto County, the DeSoto, Hernando DeSoto Bridge going from Arkansas to, into 
into Tennessee, uh, into Memphis. It's miles away from West Memphis, Arkansas. So that's a little bit dishonest, not the worst, but it's not West Memphis, Arkansas. Police believe Jesse Miskelly, along with his friends Damien and Jason, murdered three boys in a satanic ritual. And now they're grilling him for answers. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe that until Jesse Miskelly told them that. They've got this backwards. You know, this is the tail wagging the dog once again. They were asking him what happened, and then he tells them what happened. So they didn't know what was going on here with Jesse Miskelly Jr., except he, he seemed to know something about these killings and he was willing to talk. Brian Ridge takes a piece of paper and he draws a circle. He puts two dots inside the circle. That's Damien and that's Jason Baldwin. And he said, here we are outside the circle. Now, Jesse, where are you? You either in the circle with them or you're outside the circle with us. You don't. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I really should go check. I think Gary Gitchell may have actually done the circle, the circle game with, uh, but I, I could be wrong. I, I don't recall. I, I just don't recall that. And it's not that important. Police did do this. They showed, uh, Jesse, a, a picture of two pictures. They showed him some mug shots of the boys, mug shots that were in the newspaper. And they showed a picture of, dead Chris Byers. Basically, it's a picture of his face. It's a sad-looking picture, and he's, he looks muddy, he's dirty, he looks beaten up, and of course, he, he, looks, he looks dead. But it's not, uh, it's not gruesome it's, uh, in, in the sense that there's no open wounds or anything like that. And that characterization that he was shown all these autopsy photos is just not what happened. It was one single photo. It was one single photo of a boy, and it was by no means the most gruesome. It wasn't even close to being the most gruesome photo there. If anything, it was kind of sad, more than kind of sad. It was very sad, tragic. Um, Jesse broke. They had a tape. I don't think they mentioned it here. They had a tape of Aaron Hutchison saying, no one knows what happened but me. And they played that. And this scares Jesse to the point that he starts talking. Now, if he didn't, if he didn't do it, then nobody knows what happened but me. And it's a child. I mean, what's the response? But okay, I don't. I don't know what happened either. If you're innocent, I don't know what happened. I don't know who that is. What are y'all talking about? And I realize Miskelly's not the brightest bulb, but what happened was, that's an understatement. What happened was it triggered guilt feelings in him, and he had been feeling guilty. He'd been crying at night. Uh, his uh, father's living girlfriend, Lee Rush, and his father, mostly Lee Rush, talked about how Jesse had been upset uh, crying. They assumed, uh, they thought maybe it was his girlfriend moving, or he, uh, he told them that it was his girlfriend was moving, which I don't even think was actually the case. But anyway, they, 
they, but you know, they knew something was wrong with Jesse. So when he becomes, he's arrested and the officers are in there, they're going to talk. And that's what they said. So we know that he was upset about this. We don't hear about Jason Baldwin being upset. We don't hear Damien about Damien being upset. Because guess what? They weren't upset. They don't care. I'm not sure either one of them has a conscience. I'm pretty sure Baldwin does not at all. Damien has got many, many other quirks and problems. Uh, he may have some some residual conscience someplace, but I say no. Nah. In fact, I think uh, when John Fogelman said there's not a soul in there, I think that pretty accurately describes both those guys. Not Miss, not Miss Kelly. I think he, I think, I think give him that much humanity. But these are like two lizard, these are two like lizard beings that just happen to be walking around in human skin. Already been there five and a half hours, most of which. He'd already been there five and a half hours, most of which time he'd been saying he knew nothing. That is just absolutely false. I told you it's five and a half hours to the end, the end of the confession. Five and a half hours, he uh, he hadn't been saying he didn't he he knew nothing. He he said he knew nothing for about an hour from about the time they started really talking to him, which would have been after after eleven and before twelve thirty, with some t- time to spare in there for getting the polygraph ready and all that. But anyway, he had had a brief. It had a brief interview with him. The, the notes are available on the CallahanMySite.com. And he's not denying that he knows anything about the. Well, he is denying he knows anything about it, but he's, it's not as if he's, they're accusing him of anything. They're just talking to him, basically. What's going You know, what do you know about this? What do you know about that? Who do you think might have done this? This sort of thing. So that once again, we get, you know, we don't get the 12-hour interrogation, but we get the five-and-a-half-hour interrogation, which, again, is a lie. You can stretch it. I mean, if, if you want to throw in the second, the second tape to tape and go from 12, 12.30 or so till 5 o'clock in the afternoon when everything was definitely cut off as far as interrogation, what is that, four-and-a-half hours? Okay, so, and he's not being interrogated most of that time. We're just not really sure when that second taped interrogation was. It was after three, it was sometime between 3.30, 3.40, and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it didn't go on that long. It wasn't that long. It wasn't most of that time. So it wasn't like there was this intensive in five and a half hour interrogation and they get Jesse to break. It just didn't happen that way. It happened pretty quickly. Which time he'd been saying he knew nothing. Do you want to be on the inside or on the outside? And this, and this is Marl Everett saying this. And, you know, she has access to the records. She wrote a really kind of a horrible book about, well, more than horrible, it's a, a bad, dishonest, really evil book, Devil's Not. Uh, but here she's being just willfully dishonest about the time frame. She has no integrity. Yes, he said, I want to be on the outside. And 
that's when they began to turn on the tape recorder. This is Detective Brian Reed from West Memphis Police Department. Currently in the office with Jesse, Lloyd, Miss Kelly Jr. Yes, sir. So at this point, Jesse opens up to investigators. He tells them that he, Jason, and Damien are all part of a cult and that they like to, all three of them, go to Robin Hood Hills. Tell me some of the things y'all do typically in the woods in past being in this cult. We'll go out, kill dogs and stuff, and then kill girls out there. All right, what do you do with the girls when you're out there? Push food and stuff. Does just everybody take turns? Everybody all has the old stuff like that. Ridge asked about the night of the information about the cult, the occult stuff came later in the interview for the most part. The, the earlier part of the interview is going to be about what happened with the uh, what happened with the the night the, the night of the murder, the even, afternoon the evening of the murders. And there's some egregious uh, editing of the, uh, editing here that just changes things and I'll mention it as we go along. The murders and Jesse began to break and he began to say he did know something about it and he did know something about Damien and Jason. Jesse had already broken by the time they started taping. <laughs> by the time they started taping he it was thoroughly broken and it was just a matter of getting getting the information that he'd already told the officers was getting him to regurgitate it again. He gave a kind of disjointed, rather incoherent statement. I gave gave a disjointed, rather incoherent statement. That's Mara's evaluation of it. I don't find it disjointed and rather incoherent. Uh, it tells a, a very understandable, simple story of uh, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly getting together, going to Robin Hood Hills, waiting around for the boy. The, they're drinking. They, well, I don't think he mentions the drinking in that one. Anyway, they, they, they go to Robin Hood Hills. They're... They're there. They're waiting. They're waiting around there. The three boys show up. They lure them in. They kill them. They attack them. Uh, Jason uses a knife to cut uh, Stevie on the face. Cuts Christopher on the bottom. Uh, Eccles beats the boys up. They screw them and stuff, as Jesse says. Uh, and then Jesse keeps trying to leave the whole time. Uh, and that and there's some things that he gets wrong, and we're going to get into that. But they even changed that up, so I don't know what they were. I don't even know why they were doing what they were doing with this silly stuff. But we'll, we're going to move through, and we don't have much. We have about two or three minutes left in this episode, and I'll shut up after that. And some of that's commercials. He said Jason had invited him to go to the woods. Who made that phone call? Just about what did we talk about? He told me he had to go to Westminster, so he and Debbie went, then I went with him. All right, when did you go with him? That morning. What time was it that you were actually there in the park? I was there about 12. Ask him what time, okay, they, they asked him what time were you there actually in the park. I was there about 12. 
they cha- they edited these statements so Jesse was actually saying he got there about nine. So why they ch- why they went further down there, spliced it so he said he was there about twelve. I guess because they don't want to confuse the audience too much with all the with the confusing statements on the time that Miss uh, Miss Kelly was giving to police, and it was confusing. It confused them at the time. It was not something that Dan Stidham figured out after the fact. Everybody who saw that immediately knew there was a problem with the time. I, I don't get it why they would change that, but they did. Then, Jesse explains how he and his friends encountered the young boys. They called these boys to come over there. Yeah, they see the boys and they hug them. They hug them. You know, here's an example of what could be a leading question. They holler by, they call him by name. Uh, Jesse says, "No, they just hollered." Uh, he could have said, "Oh yeah, they he, they called him by name." Thanks for that leading question. Boys came home. What heard while you were there? When I was there, I saw Damien hit this one, hit this one, <laughs> and then, uh, then he started screwing with stuff. What did he hit him with? He hit him with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. And then, uh, Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Okay. He started doing the same thing, and the other one took off. Michael O'Moore took off from it, so I chased him and grabbed him and held him until they got there, and then I left. Okay, other than he, him leaving, what is disjointed and incoherent about that, moral ever? Nothing. His delivery was kind of flat. He really was, spoke in a monotone. They had to have been wondering, wow, he is saying some horrific things terrible details about what was done to these boys and he's saying it in such a flat unemotional way like what's going <laughs> this beth this is beth Karras's reaction to it the police have never so far as i know never said anything about jesse miss Kelly giving all this in a flat unemotional way Shocking, but he said he had nothing to do with raping or killing boys. They tied their hands up and they start cutting stuff. I saw it, I turned around a little, and then I took off running. I went home. Just couldn't save him. I couldn't stand him. But they were doing it to him. Jesse was Kelly. Okay, despite Miss Kelly's role in this, despite the fact that he. Killed Michael Moore with his bare hands, basically. Despite that, you can see there's like a glimmer of a conscience in here. You you just heard more of uh, some sort of remorse, second thoughts, some sort of moral outlook. Such as it is, as weak as it is, you see more of that there than you'll ever see from Damien Eccles or Jason Baldwin. 
breaks this case wide open with what amounts to a full confession. For police, their case was coming together. What started as a hunch that this might be related to a cult or some sort of a ritualistic killing now, for them, was turning into a... Okay, and that was the end of that. A cult or ritualistic killing was now turning into a rock-solid case. I'm stopping it there. Uh, in Maine, man, you put one of nine. In Maine, man, you went. The uh, got that automated voice going on there, and I hate the thing. Um, briefly, and I'm already going on longer than I intended, but uh, briefly, they have once again, they have the cause and effect backwards. They investigated this case, and what they ultimately came up with was a case where this guy confesses, and part of what goes on with his confession is an involvement in a satanic cult with a guy who is an admitted witch. Now, as some witches, some of these people who are witches would be very upset to be associated with the Satanist or the devil. Uh, The Wicca people basically don't say say they don't believe in any of that and that their religion is has nothing to do with the the Christian religion with its dualistic belief system between God and the devil and so forth. Uh, And that's valid enough for what it is. Uh, we, I could go on about some things in the Wicca religion, and it's it has a curious relation to Aleister Crowley, but uh, it's somewhat irrelevant to this. Uh, Damien makes noises about being a, a Wiccan, but the truth is, is he was something else. And he, if you look at what he was actually doing, saying, thinking, what other people were saying about him, he was something much darker and with much more malicious intent than uh, what the Wiccans would approve of. By uh, by almost by how how far how, to the nth degree. Um, but the, the police didn't start out going, "Oh, well, yeah, well, we got a real real ritualistic crime. Let's go talk to Jesse Muskelly Jr. Get him to." Uh, confess to being a satanic cult, and then we'll go arrest Damien Eccles, which is kind of how this sounds. That's not what happened. Anyway, that's enough for me today, maybe more than enough, and I will stop this. This is the case against. This is Gary Meese. Uh, wishing you all well during the coronavirus shutdown. now I've got a spinning wheel here. As soon as the spinning wheel stops, I'm going to put a stop on this. Here we go.